ESPN Radio. This is ESPN Radio on the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, and on ESPN Plus. ESPN Radio is presented to you by Progressive Insurance. I'm Amber Wilson. He's Chris Canty. We are taking you up until 7 o'clock Eastern. You can tweet to us at ESPN Radio, at Chris Canty 99, at Amber W790. You can also always join the conversation with us on the Canty call-in line at 888-SAY-ESPN. We are asking you who has had the better start to the playoffs, the Warriors or the 76ers? 888-SAY-ESPN, 888-729-3776. Lots of NBA action tonight as the first round rolls on. The Hawks and the Heat will tip off at 7.30 p.m. tonight. The Timberwolves-Grizz will get it going at 8.30 p.m. tonight. And the Pelicans and Suns will tip things off at 10 p.m. tonight. But let's talk about that Timberwolves-Grizzlies matchup. And for that, we bring in Michael Wallace, senior editor, contributor, and analyst for Grind City Media at Grizzlies.com. And Mike, a surprising start to the series for the Memphis Grizzlies. Is tonight in game two a must win for this team? You know, I think I think it is a must-win simply because you have two young teams, two teams that aren't typically used to being in the playoffs uh, at, at this level and at this stage uh, based on the rosters that you have. Um, this is really is going to show how, how much both of these teams uh, have grown up. I mean, can the Grizzlies answer the call after losing game one? They've worked all season long to tie the franchise record and win 56 games um, to secure home court advantage. They had the second-best record in the league. And then they gave it all back in one game, uh, one game into the playoffs. Can they bounce back from a professional maturity standpoint? And can the Timberwolves show some resolve and some resilience and some maturity as well? Because they can easily mail in tonight and say, we already accomplished what we did, uh, came, come to Memphis to do. So can they really uh, uh, step up and, and try to take this series a commanding 2-0 lead? So there's a lot going into tonight's game. And I think it's a must win, more so for the Grizzlies, obviously, than the Timberwolves. But they definitely could take advantage if they pull out another win. Mike, if the Grizzlies are going to bounce back, John Moran is going to have to have a big-time performance. We saw a little bit of a lull from him in terms of his shooting from the field in the second and third quarters of game one when he went nearly 15 minutes of game time without logging a field goal. So just your impressions on what the Minnesota Timberwolves are doing to slow down John Moran and him being effective in terms of producing and scoring from the field. Yeah, that was, you know, I looked at that and, and, and went back through the game as well. And, and, you know, he got to the free throw line quite a bit of times during that. So he really didn't get credit for, for field goal attempts, but he did take double-digit free throws um, because he was getting fouled a lot uh, going into the lane and attacking. Uh, but what that did was that's exactly what the Timberwolves wanted him to do. They basically rope-a-doped the Grizzlies and John Morant into, you know, attacking the paint and then sending them to the free throw line, and he wasn't able to get other teammates involved. The Grizzlies have been as good as they've been all season long because John ja Morant has been able to spray the ball around to shooters like Dylan Brooks, shooters like you know Desmond Bain, and things of that nature. De'Anthony Melton coming off the bench, getting it going, and those kind of guys, Jaron Jackson Jr. But when Ja takes over like that, he's not able to really get his teammates involved. So that's what the Timberwolves wanted him to do. They got one-dimensional, and they were able to secure the game that way. He's got to be a facilitator first and then set the table so he can be a closer last. That's one of the reasons why he was one of the top fourth-quarter scorers in the league because he set the table early and then got his points and his dominance down the stretch of games. 
Michael Wallace, senior editor and contributor and analyst for Grind City Media at Grizzlies.com on ESPN Radio with Amber Wilson and Chris Canty. So you talked about what John Morant needs to do. Who else needs to step up here for the Grizz to get this done tonight? Let's talk about his supporting cast. Who who I'm, do you have as being a key piece here for the for their success? Yes, I mean, I, I, obviously, Jaron Jackson Jr. set a franchise record uh, with seven, eight block shots uh, in, in game one, but he only played limited minutes because of foul trouble. He didn't give him anything offensively. He has to step up and be a two-way player uh, to sort of offset what Carl Anthony Towns and, and Anthony Edwards are being able to do as a one-two punch. You know, Josh scored well. Dylan Brooks scored well. Uh, but those guys really weren't impactful. So he needs to have the bench. Desmond Bain needs to get back to being one of the top three-point shooters in the league. Desmond uh, broke Mike Miller's franchise record for three-pointers made in the season. He's got to knock down three-point shots. The Grizzlies missed 23-pointers and 11 free throws in game one. As bad as their defense was, their offense wasn't that great either. They got to fix those numbers right there and sort of aggress to the mean as opposed to regress to the mean. Yeah, that's definitely not a formula for success if you're the Grizzlies. But you mentioned how bad their defense was. One of the guys that exploited that was Anthony Edwards. What has to be Taylor Jenkins in the Grizzlies' game plan in terms of how they're going to contain that monster? Because Anthony Edwards is special, and he was dominant in game one. You couldn't take away anything from him in that game. They gave him everything he wanted. He he stepped into three-pointers confidently. Um, When they pushed up, you know, he went around them and got into the lane. He scored on all three levels. What you have to do is decide, okay, I'm going to take away one of his one of his go-to moves, one of his go-to uh, preferences, and the Grizzlies didn't take away any of that. What I'm thinking is that, listen, if he can prove to you that he can knock down threes like that again, um, then that's the, he, you just got to live with that. But you cannot allow him to get to the free throw line and into the paint. So take away two of those things. Allow him to be a jump shooter if you can. But the problem with that, Chris, is that this is a guy that's proven already in this league that he's a multiple-level scorer, and he's also not a shabby defender either. So Anthony Edwards is going to be a superstar in this league in short order. This came, We came into this series, you know, with John Morant ascending in terms of superstardom, um, and, and now the spotlight is going to shift towards Anthony Edwards joining him on that stage. They got to take away one of his go-to uh, options right there, and I think that's going to have to be limiting his touches and his involvement once he gets into the paint. Some really young, exciting players here in the NBA. And and no two teams younger than this matchup in terms of these NBA playoffs. How much do you think youth has been a factor here for the Grizzlies? I mean, they came in, Michael, after not playing for over a week, so a very different story mm-hmm. than the Timberwolves, and they're very young. Do you think that had something to do with their performance in Game 1? I, I think so. It, you know, they, they, they admit it. You know, Jaron Jackson Jr. came out uh, yesterday in the media availability and said he played like crap. He used another four-letter word, but he said he played like crap. Um, Taylor Jenkins said that he wasn't as quick to the trigger on some adjustments that, you know, he probably could have made in game one. You know, uh, John Morant also said he should have done a better job of giving up coming off the ball a little bit quicker than holding it uh, for an extra dribble and, and, and trying to do too much uh, on his own. So, these, these guys showed some maturity by being able to look in the mirror and accept where their shortcomings were. Now they just have to get out there and address them. But, again, when you have a week off, um, you know, after playing so many games in, in so, such, such a short amount of time, it does throw your rhythm off. One team played like they were still in the play-in round, and that was the Timberwolves. They had that desperation. The Grizzlies played like they knew it was a seven-game series, and it came back to bite them. I think things will settle in today or tonight uh, with that extra day to prepare and extra day to think about everything. And you should see a pretty uh, closely contested game again uh, where both teams hopefully get into their best. This is going to be a highly contested series all the way through. 
Talking with Michael Wallace, analyst for Grind City Media at Grizzlies.com. And, and Michael, you mentioned it a little bit, but I want to go back to it. The start that we saw the Minnesota Timberwolves get out to in game one, dropping 41 points in the first quarter. That's something that we typically see from the Memphis Grizzlies. How were the T-Wolves able to turn the tables? And then what do the Grizz need to do in order to get back to what they do best, which is starting out fast? I mean, the Grizzlies were the first team or the only team in NBA history to lead the league in total rebounds, total blocks, total steals, right? So when you put those three categories together, Uh, they were able to dominate from a defensive standpoint, especially early on in games. They weren't able to get the 50-50 balls. The Timberwolves beat them to a lot of 50-50 loose balls on offensive rebounds and and steal attempts. The Timberwolves also were able to limit the Grizzlies from getting out in transition um, to score easier from that standpoint. Um, And then, frankly, you know, I mean, these guys just hit shots. When you go back and look at how difficult the shot quality, there was a stat that came out um, everybody looked at in the last couple of days in terms of shot quality. The level of uh, difficulty and degree of difficulty of the shots that the Timberwolves were hitting uh, was of a high level. You know, the Grizzlies had easier shots. They just didn't make them. And at the end of the day, it becomes a make-or-miss league. But you cannot sacrifice your defense. And the Grizzlies kind of had that, that, that lazy, slowish, sluggish first step. And they weren't able to adjust. And before you knew it, they were down double figures quickly in that game. They got to avoid that and get back to being one of the top uh, performing teams in the first quarter the way they had been all season. Senior editor, contributor, and analyst for Grind City Media at Grizzlies.com. Michael Wallace, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, anytime, guys. Thanks a lot for having me. So, again, that series, Timberwolves-Grizzlies, game two, tips off tonight, 8.30 p.m. 76ers-Raptors will tip off for game three tomorrow at 8 p.m. And we're wondering next if the biggest, bigger question mark for the 76ers in these playoffs is James Harden or Doc Rivers. That's next. This is ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio. The Philadelphia 76ers are up two games to none on the Toronto Raptors coming off of yesterday's 112-97 win. And both Chris Canty and I have been disappointed in this Toronto Raptors team because we all both thought that they would put up a bit more of a fight than they've actually put up. But I don't want to take anything away from what the Philadelphia 76ers have done here, Chris. And what they and, and what they have done is shown us with Joel Embiid, a player who may or may not win the MVP. I don't think he's going to win the MVP because I think Jokic is, but he's right there just a hair below Jokic in terms of most likely the MVP voting. And we're seeing from him that he can be that MVP player in the postseason as well. We're seeing that the supporting cast in Maxi and Harris is a heck of a supporting cast and can step up in the postseason. And we're seeing that James Harden can facilitate an offense. He is remarkable in 
in terms of his efficiency and the way that he makes his teammates around him better, at least in this series against Toronto. So I'm curious to know then from your perspective, who is more important here for the 76ers to actually make a run, make a run in the East, get to an NBA finals? Who's more important? Is it going to be James Harden doing even more than he's done? Or is it going to be Doc Rivers, who I think is still on the hot seat as we continue through these playoffs? Amber, I'll have to say it's going to be Doc Rivers. And I know that there are question marks with James Harden's game, but the question marks about his explosiveness haven't, hasn't limited his ability to find a way to be effective. And that's the thing that I'm going to judge or project what James Harden is going to be for the rest of the playoffs. I get it. It's the Toronto Raptors. They're undermanned. Gary Trent Jr. only played 10 minutes last night. He was clearly not himself with the illness. Scotty Barnes didn't play at all with the ankle injury. We saw that this was a depleted Raptors team, and they just didn't have enough. Even though they gave the Sixers their best punch, they started the game on an 11-2 run, it just wasn't sustainable. But a big reason why the Sixers were able to climb back into that game was because of the playmaking of James Harden. And it's not always something that's going to show up in the stat sheet. It's just him making the extra pass, spacing the floor properly on offense, coming up with steals on defense, being able to communicate switches and being able to uh, uh, coordinate with guys on help side defense. All of those things equate to winning plays. And that's what we're seeing from James Harden. And I haven't necessarily appreciated that aspect of his game because this is a different James Harden than we saw early on with the Brooklyn Nets. And this is a different James Harden than we knew when he was with the Houston Rockets. This is a guy that's had 20 assists through the first two games of this series. And that has led to the Philadelphia 76ers having 30, count them, 30 three-point makes through the first two games. I'm not saying that that's James Harden making the assist on all of those plays. What I am saying is James Harden is getting the ball to guys in their spots and they're being effective once they get those opportunities from him. That's why we're seeing Tobias Harris go off for 20-plus per game. That's why we're seeing Tyrese Maxey average 31 points a game in this series. That's how you get a Joel Embiid dropping 19 points in the first quarter. It's because James Harden is making game-winning plays. So I don't. the only question I have about James Harden in, in the playoffs is whether or not he's going to be able to be that guy to get a bucket in crunch time for the Sixers when they need it. So final five minutes of the game, one possession games, is he going to be the guy that you can rely on to get that bucket? Because I don't quite trust Tyrese Maxey to be that guy. Tobias Harris, damn sure ain't that guy. And Joel Embiid is a big, you typically don't see bigs take control of a game down the stretch. It has to be a guy that's a primary ball handler. And that is James Harden. That's why Daryl Morey moved heaven and earth to bring him over to Brooklyn to be the difference in those games. So that's the thing that I want James Harden to answer for me as we move through the playoffs, I don't think we're going to get that answer in this series because I only expect it to go two more games and those games won't be all that competitive. But I do expect us to get that answer when they go into the second round to face presumably the Miami Heat. And to me, Amber, that's when we're going to find out not only about James Harden, but we're going to find out about Doc Rivers because he's going up against, in my opinion, a superior coach in Eric Spolstra.
Yeah, we're not going to get the answer then either because the Heat are just going to dominate the Sixers. He's wow, to there we go. Win that Here game at the end Here of the series, I'm just saying. But focusing on this series for a second. Yeah, respectfully. Uh, spoken, uh, <laughs> focusing on this series for a second. I, do, I don't think, and like you said, we're not going to probably also get that opportunity to hear from James Harden because we're not going to need James Harden to step up uh, in terms of being that clutch player. But he's been very clutch in terms of facilitating this offense, and he's done so so effectively and so efficiently. He is making everybody around him better and it's not showing up in the box score and it's maybe not the analytics game because who people who love the numbers, maybe you're not seeing it, but the eye test, Chris Canty, which you love to talk about so much, the eye Mm -hmm. test, when we talk about MVP in the NBA, if you're talking about the eye test with James Harden, then he is helping very much make everybody around him better. He's helping to elevate Maxi. He's helping to elevate Harris. Shout out to Tobias Harris though, by the way, because all Although he's not that clutch player either, like you just mentioned, you were very dismissive of Tobias Harris being that guy. But Harris has found a way here down the final uh, games of the regular season and then here in these playoffs to play with James Harden and play in this offense and be highly effective because it was a little rough going there when James Harden first joined the team for Harris. But this team has really come together in the postseason and come together at the right time. And all of that has to do with James Harden and the chemistry that they are developing around him as he facilitates this offense. Jay Williams, of course, from Keyshawn, Jay Will, and Max, he says that that is going to be the key for the 76ers to win this, this not just the series, but win the East. This is who James Harden needs to be in order for this team to win a championship. I'm talking about the James Harden that scores 14 points, 14 to 20 points. The guy that doesn't take 25 shots. Last night he took nine. He could be more efficient three of nine. Seven and eight from the free throw line. He could be more efficient from the three-point line. But pass first, point guard, James Harden, where Tyrese Maxey goes off. Tobias Harris is giving you points. Joel Embiid, 19 points in the first quarter. This is the equation for the 76ers to win a world championship. Not James Harden dancing with the ball 9,000 times, getting up 35 jacks. He needs to be this version of himself for this team to be the best version of themselves to win it all. The one thing I don't know about James Harden is if he just is this good in terms of basketball IQ and reading his opponent and knowing exactly what his team needs from him, or if this is just kind of where we're at with James Harden's game, where now he's not going to be a bog a ball hog and now he's not going to be throwing up every shot because he doesn't really have it anymore quite like he used to because we've been theorizing here down the second half of this season whether James Harden has lost a step because I think we've gotten to that point with James Harden. And so I do wonder, Chris, is this James Harden just giving his team exactly what he needs and it's such a brilliant basketball move or is this now the player that James Harden is? Well, I, I think it can be a little bit of both, Amber, but here's what I would say. I, I I don't know that I'm worried about James Harden finding a way to be effective and productive as much as I am worried about Doc Rivers holding his players back. And when I say holding his players back, not doing it intentionally, but by you know not necessarily having the right strategy, not having the right rotation, not knowing how he wants to stagger minutes, potentially doing a disservice to his guys having the best chance to compete on any given night against quality competition. I don't have to worry about that with Eric Spolstra in the Miami Heat. I just don't. I don't have to worry about that with Coach Bud and the Milwaukee Bucks. I really don't worry about it with Ime Odoka and the Boston Celtics. I don't. Steve Nash with the Brooklyn Nets, that's a different story, but it is the Brooklyn Nets. The only thing I would say is this, Amber. In watching last night's game where the Philadelphia 76ers led by as many as 29 points, tell me why in the final five minutes of the game 
with a 16, 17-point lead, why why is Joel Embiid and, and James Harden and Tyrese Maxey still in the game? Right. Why in a game where where you led by damn near 30 do those guys have to log 41 minutes? Those are the things that I worry about because you are not just talking about a, a war against the competition. You're also talking about a war of attrition in the playoffs, something to be considered. That's something that I don't trust Doc Rivers with as we move through the playoffs, especially with two of his key guys in Embiid and Harden having the injury history that they do. Well, we already know Doc Rivers' seat is a little bit warm, and maybe James Harden would prefer to see a different coach. <laughs> Mike D'Antoni. Wow, wow. Uh, and they're at the helm, respectfully, if uh, James Harden got his way. So we know that seat's a little warm for Doc Rivers. We will see how this continues, though, to progress through these playoffs. So far, uh, it's good news for everybody, including Doc Rivers, I think, with the way that this 76ers team has looked against the Toronto Raptors. Coming up next, has Jokic's struggles in these playoffs changed your view on his MVP? VP candidacy. Chris Canty says, yes, I say no. That's next. This is ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio. Is the postseason already changing your mind about Jokic? This is ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio is presented to you by Progressive Insurance. I am Amber Wilson. He is Chris Canty. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive. Progressive makes bundling easy and affordable. Get a multi-policy discount by combining your car, home, motorcycle, commercial, auto, and more. All your protection in one place. Bundle and save at Progressive.com. So you heard it there on the rejoin. The Warriors are up on Jokic's Denver Nuggets. Two games to none. It has been an ugly series so far, and things got very ugly last night. The refs handed Jokic his second tech last night. He got ejected from the game. That was after getting into a dust-up with Gary Payton, complaining a whole lot about the officiating, and then, frankly, the Warriors just blowing out the Nuggets 126 to 106. It is obvious that the Nuggets are outmatched in this series. I don't know if that necessarily is a knock on Jokic. He is playing without two of his uh, supporting cast. I mean, his second and third best player on that team uh, are out in the series. They've been out all season. This matters a lot uh, to the Denver Nuggets, and frankly, Jokic is the only reason that that team has stayed afloat. But based on his behavior last night, based on the production of this Nuggets team so far in the postseason, Chris Canty, you are out on Jokic now being an MVP, even though the MVP is a regular season award. It's not really based on his behavior, though, Amber, even though he got tossed in last night's game and he got tossed in the last playoff series where the Nuggets got swept against the Phoenix Suns. I, I'm not basing it on the behavior. I'm basing it on his inability to elevate the talent on his team. And I get it. Jamal Murray is out. Michael Porter is out. And they've got to deal with that. But Jamal Murray was out last year, and Michael Porter dealt with injuries last year, too. 
And so we had Richard Jefferson on the show earlier today, our very own ESPN NBA analyst, and he made the point. That was a part of the narrative for Jokic to win MVP last year, and we're rolling with that again, even though his team is a lesser seed in the playoff picture this year. That's something that's hard for me to understand. And if you truly are somebody that is deserving of back-to-back MVPs, looking at the names on the list of players in NBA history that have won back-to-back MVPs, you shouldn't be on a six-game losing streak in the playoffs. You just shouldn't. And so I'm sitting here wondering now, everybody's saying that, oh, it's a regular season award. I'm not using the playoffs as a referendum on whether Jokic deserves the MVP. I'm just citing that the MVP is a part of how we compare players throughout the history of the NBA. And if we're going to vault Jokic into this territory where he's going to get back-to-back MVPs, then I'm going to judge his performance in the postseason accordingly. And all I'm simply saying is this. What I'm seeing in the first two games against the Golden State Warriors is not a player that's worthy of back-to-back MVPs. I I just don't see it. And so that's the thing that I'm looking at. That's the part where I get a little bit uncomfortable because I look at some of the names that have won back-to-back MVPs, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Russell, I mean, you know, you the greats that the game has seen, Steph Curry, Giannis. I, I mean, I don't know that – let me not even say I don't know. I know Jokic is not in that territory based on what I'm seeing in the postseason, not only this year, but what I saw in the postseason last year. At some point as an MVP, you got to show up. And I'm not saying that that means you got to win the series against the Golden State Warriors because I'm with you. I don't think the Nuggets have enough. Right. But I at least expect you to be able to win a game. Well, I Nuggets- at least expect you. I at least expect you to put up more of a fight and not have every game lose by twenty. And right now, I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that we're going to get a different result, even though this series is about to shift back to Denver. The Nuggets don't have enough. You mentioned they didn't have enough last season. He was missing the pieces. I would say that this season, though, the fact that Jokic is even better, and I know you hate the advanced metrics, and people who love analytics love Jokic, obviously, uh, because Mm -hmm. he is an analytics crowd pleaser, but it's more than just the advanced metrics. I mean, he is the best offensive player in the NBA, right? I, I don't know if you can argue that. Like, he is the best offensive player in the entire NBA. No, 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 no. He is, absolutely. Who would be above Jokic? Uh, in Jokic terms is not of a better offensive ability. player than Kevin Durant. He's not. Stop he it. Is by He's the not. Numbers. Stop he is the blast. Everything we've no, seen this season, no, okay, he okay, is right okay, now, okay, and that's why right. he's winning a back-to-back <laughs> MVP. What are we doing okay. with Jokic here, though? I think it's because he plays in Denver. Like, why are we not willing to catapult Jokic into the conversation with some of these greats? Because he is a top five player in the NBA right now, and I feel like because he plays in Denver and because he doesn't have a supporting cast around him, that is even the supporting cast that he's supposed to have and I understand yes he's missing one of those key pieces last season as well but now he's missing both of them in this postseason and this team would be a lottery team without Jokic on it I mean when you talk about the importance of somebody to their team I mean there's no player more important to their team than Jokic is to that Denver Nuggets team because they would be abysmal without Jokic on the court you saw it in small snippets this season I think they were like two and six without him this season he's normally always out there night in and night out for them it's the only reason that Nuggets team has been able to stay afloat and 
And we talked earlier in the show about the historical things he's doing, and he's breaking all sorts of NBA records. And I realize that most of that is offensively, but also even Uh defensively, he's a lot better than people give him credit for. So when you're talking about a player that played shorthanded last season, but now this season is even more shorthanded and better in all of the categories this season, and you gave it to that guy last season, then you kind of have to give it to that guy this season. Amber, I got to ask you a question because I'm not able to get past when you said that Jokic is a top five player in the NBA right now. So you're saying if we had a draft with NBA executives that Jokic would be among the five picks, the first five picks? Is that what you're saying? Where would you put Jokic in the NBA? He's certainly not a top five player. Not in my book. I I don't think top five. five. I feel like you're just doing Denver bias there, though. I'm I'm just being honest. Amber, if you're asking me the question, if we had a draft today, am I taking Nikola Jokic with one of the top five picks? The answer is hell no. I'm not taking Nikola Jokic with a top five pick. I ain't doing it. I I think that most NBA executives would disagree with you. I think most people who know the league would say he's a top five player in the league. I mean, we're talking about a dude who's about to win a back-to-back MVP. That's my point. That's the madness of it. He's about to win back-to-back MVPs, and he's not a top five player. It is madness. Don't throw player efficiency ratings at me. Don't throw analytics at me because they only tell part of the story. They don't tell the whole story. But the rest of the story is that he's on the worst team out of any of these guys that we're talking about in an MVP conversation. Like, the rest of the story helps as well. The rest of the story helps helps Jokic. It doesn't hurt Jokic. I'm, I'm going to go beyond this, the numbers during the break. I am going to put out the top five players. If I was an executive in the NBA that I would draft before Jokic, I, I don't even want to say before Jokic because I don't know where Jokic would land. I just know he's not in my top five. So okay. during the break, I'm going to go to Twitter. I'm going to put that out on Twitter and leave that for public consumption. Hey, maybe, maybe I'll leave, give you because we got to leave this conversation right here. Maybe. I don't know if we do have to leave it right here. I almost feel like we should give you some room to have this conversation at some point. I know that we are coming down the stretch here uh, in terms of our our run here on ESPN Radio. We are taking you up until 7 o'clock Eastern, but maybe we'll be able to get in Chris Canty's top five players in the NBA. Or we could tease it in four tomorrow, Chris. Uh, We could definitely get some run out of this. That's how you radio, kids. Coming up next, Chris Canty admits that I was right about something anyways. This is ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio. 
Chris, the ratings in terms of the NBA postseason already have made this opening playoff weekend the most watched weekend since 2011. The ratings jumped 34% and viewership as much as 59% or more. Uh, So basically ratings up across the board in terms of these NBA playoffs. A lot of that is due to that Brooklyn Nets, Boston Celtics series, which on average generated 6.9 million viewers. It peaked at nearly 10 million viewers. That is the most watched first round matchup since 2016. By comparison, the USFL, it debuted over the weekend. Chris Canty, it drew 2.95 million viewers, almost 3 million viewers. So as well as the NBA's doing, like Celtics Nets, gets 6.9 million and USFL. I don't even, I couldn't even tell you any player who's bothering to play in the USFL gets almost 3 million viewers. Like football is king. Football is king. So let me ask you this, Eric. Did you partake in any of USFL action this weekend? I did not. I know nothing about USFL, frankly. No USFL. No, I, I, okay. I did not. I, I, I can't. I can't do it with another one of these elite, like XFL, USFL, fan controlled football league. I, I mean, what are we doing? I, I don't know. It's too much. AAF, like it's too much for me. No, I, listen. I was, I was not on board with the AAF, but I think the USFL has has a little something going on. I listen. I watched the game that they had with the Generals and the Stallions on Saturday night. And it was awesome. It came down to the wire last last minute of the game, and it was fun to just watch. I mean, just guys out there playing football, hair on fire, and they had some interesting elements like the helmet cam where you can see it from the player's perspective, the quarterback or the running back. I thought that was pretty cool. And so I just, I'm always, and they also had the players mic'd up and the coaches mic'd up so you could actually hear the play call. So I think they're on to something in terms of creating some more innovations that can take football fans behind the curtain and let them know what's going on in real time while they're consuming the product. I don't think that these are things that NFL is going to adopt in any time in the short term, but I do think that we could see this league continue to flourish just because of the demand for football in this country. People want to watch football. You got the spring games for college programs being televised. Now we got the spring football with the USFL. The XFL is rebooting under Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, getting involved with that next year in 2023. So I'm excited that we're going to have the opportunity to watch spring football and I just think it's a win overall for football, the sport, just to have more outlets. The Timberwolves Grizzlies got 1.9 million viewers. Generals Stallions got 1.7 million viewers. The country really likes football. We are taking it down the stretch here on ESPN Radio on the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80, and on ESPN Plus. ESPN Radio is presented to you by Progressive Insurance. I'm Amber Wilson. He is Chris Canty. We have had a lot of help on today's show. Richard Jefferson, ESPN's NBA analyst, joined us to help break down these NBA playoffs, as did Michael Wallace, senior editor, contributor, and analyst for Grind City Media at Grizzlies.com to talk about that surprising so far series between the Timberwolves and the Memphis Grizzlies. Lots of NBA action uh, tonight as the postseason rolls on here for the first round. The Hawks and Heat will tip off at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Timberwolves-Grizzlies, 8.30 tonight. Pelicans-Suns at 10 p.m. Eastern. Now it is time, Chris Canty, to go three and outs. Sometimes it's the worst. Sometimes it's the best. Either way, we'll get you straight with everything you need to know. 
This is Three and Out. Freddie Freeman reunited with the Atlanta Braves. Uh, there was lots of chance when he went up to bat. He said that it was something special to him uh, to hear the chance. And then Freeman lived up to the expectations. Lining the second pitch, he saw into the gap in left center field over the fence for his first homer as a member of the Los Angeles Dodgers. It was a storybook moment for Freddie Freeman, who until recently, Chris, never thought he would be in another uniform outside of Atlanta. What did you make of Freddie Freeman's at bat? No, it was a nice reunion of sorts, and it was a great moment before the game where Freddie Freeman got his Silver Slugger Award that he won last season because of his production at the plate. And having his wife there, his his, his boys, the twins, and then the, the, the oldest son, like it was a pretty cool moment to see all of that, see his former teammates come up to him and – and, you know, give them some love and, and just be acknowledged in that way by the Atlanta Braves organization and their manager, Brian Snitker. I thought it was class on the Braves' behalf in terms of how they approached the night. And Freddie Freeman was classy in terms of how he handled it in the postgame, talking about that home run, saying that it's not poetic justice and that it's a situation where he's just trying to help his team win. So I thought it was class all the way around. I was glad that Freddie Freeman had that moment. And as difficult as it might be for Braves fans to see him in a Dodgers uniform, you still got to root for a guy like Freddie Freeman because he did do right by your franchise for such a long period of time. And it ended with you guys being able to hold up a World Series trophy. So I I know it's uncomfortable, but you can't hate on Freddie Freeman just because he's got a Dodgers uniform on. He did right by the Atlanta Braves, and it feels like they did right by him in being respectful of his decision and being respectful when these two teams tangled up last night. Respectfully. They got got their money's worth with that World Series. He got his money's worth going to the Los Angeles Dodgers. But like you said, yes, he said uh, no poetic justice after this game. He said, I know there's storylines and everyone wants to run and say this and that. But the only storyline today was I was just happy to see my friends again. So a nice story there in a, and, and them reuniting there uh, in Atlanta. The 76ers and Raptors are going to reunite in game three. Philly leads that series two games to none. And earlier in the show, we were discussing this series when Chris Canty admitted something about me that was just the most wonderful words I have ever heard. Here was Chris Canty earlier in the show. Yeah, and Amber, the more we talk about it, the more I'm starting to come over to your point of view. What the Sixers are doing is more impressive than what Golden State is doing. I'm going to go ahead and take the L and admit that you were right in this debate, this conversation that we were having, just based on the expectations of the teams coming in, right? Because I pretty much expected the Golden State Warriors to do what they're doing to the Denver Nuggets. I did not see the Philadelphia 76ers manhandling the Toronto Raptors the way that they are. My favorite thing, Chris Canty, a man can ever say to me is you are right. And (laughs) you said that to me on today's show. So today is a good day. Victory lap for Amber Wilson. You were right. The Sixers are more impressive early on in the playoffs than the Golden State Warriors. I'm stupid. You're smart. Amber, even a broken clock is right twice a day. So, I mean, I'll give you your props for getting it done today and having that moment. And I'm not going to try to take anything away from that respectfully. Respect. Oh, respectfully. With all due respect. Respectfully. Uh, Are we giving Terrell Owens his all due respect? 
He is still out here catching passes, Chris Canty, at 48 years old. He is doing it in the fan-controlled football league. If you're watching ESPN Plus right now, you are seeing his touchdown. It is actually impressive. He does have some hops left at darn near 50 years old. Chris Canty doesn't just still look the part. He apparently is the part. Were you impressed by T.O.? Man, I love my teammate T.O., but he need to sit his ass down somewhere. He damn near 50, man. Stop yourself, bro. Like, I, we get it. Everybody knows you keep yourself in tremendous shape. And that has not been the question. But for you to be in the fan-controlled football league, thinking that you're angling for a way to get back into the NFL, stop yourself, T. You're not just doing it for the love of the game. We know that you want to be back in the NFL. No team is going to sign you at 48 years old, bro. I love you. I love you. You're a Hall of Famer for a reason. But your, but your time in the NFL is over with. You need to come to grips with that. You're he's not getting back the in the league. He's been out of the league, apparently not retired, because he's just still waiting for another chance, out of the league for over 10 years. He said that he felt a little rusty, but that he's working on the timing there with his quarterbacks and that he is looking to make a comeback, comeback here in the NFL. Also looking to make a comeback, Spain and Fitz. They're on ESPN Radio next.